Welcome to the Canteen Podcast, a show for anyone who has feelings about food. Join host Ali Houston as guests open up about their relationship with food and their thoughts on nutrition. Nourish yourself with the Canteen Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Canteen Podcast. I'm your host, Ali Houston. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. Please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks, and enjoy the show. And we are recording. And I'm really delighted to have with me today Anna Frailing and David Wolfe. Uh, Anna is a practicing health coach and a food addiction specialist at SugarX Global, and David's a registered dietitian and sugar addiction coach. Welcome. Thank thanks you for having, thanks us. for having us. Well, thanks it's so much awesome for coming on. Um, I met you both on Clubhouse uh, on Dr. Jen Unwin's food addiction room. Uh, she's written a book called Fork in the Road with your involvement. And Maybe you can each tell me in turn your health stories and how you came to where you are today with it. Do you want to go first, Dave, or you want me to go first? Go ahead, go ahead. Okay, well, I'll just say it um, kind of quickly, but I've always felt like I was health conscious and I, and I really like, I followed that pyramid, you know, I made sure I got my healthy whole grains. I made sure I did this and that. Man, I was exercising like crazy. I was going to Zumba three times a week, body pump three or four times a week, walking, getting outside, this and that. And all of a sudden my body just crashed. And it really happened kind of slowly over time. I thought, oh, I'm tired. Oh, I'm achy. Oh, this and that. And I got a diagnosis of severe rheumatoid arthritis with the highest um, markers my doctor had ever seen. And within a matter of days of getting that diagnosis, I couldn't even get out of bed by myself. And so I was destroyed because here I thought I was doing everything right. I had been clean off of drugs and alcohol for decades, you know, and so I wasn't even, I wasn't doing anything to harm my body according to standard practices, right? And so I just felt horrible and I, and I started getting one autoimmune disease after another diagnosed, Sjogren's psoriasis, which I had had off and on since I was a small child. And then finally, I got a fourth diagnosis of celiac disease. And this was after three years of being on five medications for autoimmunity, including for one year, 30 milligrams of prednisone, and for two years, 20 milligrams of prednisone, which hijacks your insulin, your cortisol, your blood sugar. And so I literally had the fur on my face. I had the moon face. I had the the hunchback that's very characteristic of being on prednisone long-term. And I have um, osteopenia because of being on those medications for so long. And I was also on Humira and, you know, methyltrexate, all kinds of crap. And still I was miserable. I still was super stiff in the morning and I was in pain 24 seven. I got that diagnosis of celiac and I quit grains for, I quit gluten for a week and it was like the tin man got oil from the Wizard of Oz. I could move, 
I was like, I started feeling hopeful. This fatigue that comes with severe autoimmune illness, it feels like you're walking in sand up to your neck. And so that started to lift and I could cry right now with the hope that gave me. And so I started wondering, well, what the hell else could help? So this was like nine, 10 years ago. And I, I had already, I found Lauren Cordain's book about paleo, you know, and I read that and I thought, I'm going to look more up about this paleo shit. You know, I want to know more. And so I found Mark Sisson, who I consider to be my savior. You know, I love him. I've met him in person. He's the real deal. He's genuine. Um, what I really love about him is he's not dogmatic. And I think that's important because science reveals itself, right? And it changes. And so I really, um, as soon as he opened up his coaching program, I got into his coaching program. So I'm a primal certified coach through Mark Sisson, proudly, proudly represent that badge. I'm also, um, I got certified through Maria Emmerich for keto and carnivore coaching, and I'm a certified high performance coach as well. And then sugar licensed and certified through Bitten Johnson, and Bitten Johnson was life changing for me as well. But you know, now I'm mostly carnivore, but I do eat an occasional piece of fruit and I do eat, you know, some vegetables or some fermented veg now and then. I really go by how my body feels and it's wonderful to be able to trust that, you know, to get back to that factory reset. And not only that, but treat the addicted brain, right? Because my because being an addict, being able to like completely abstain from things that I know are harmful to me, but make me psychoactive, you know, and, and trigger me to do things against my will. So having that freedom and having that, you know, I'm very growth oriented, very forward thinking. I don't want to focus on the problem. I'm ready to get into the solution. Life is too short. I had three years robbed from me and I'm not going to let anything rob another minute from my life. And so I think that um, that's what I bring to Sugar X Global to our company, and and just that anybody can change and improve and receive their own optimal health. Like for instance, I'm still on a medication for my rheumatoid arthritis. I don't care. I'm going to do you know what I can to keep myself as well as I possibly can, and I'm going to um, allow myself to understand that I have certain limitations because I'm I'm not a little ill with autoimmunity. My DNA is, you know, it's, it may be too far gone to ever be completely off meds, but I have experienced in the past three years where I've been off meds more than I've been on them. And that's like something I never expected and I wasn't trying for. I was just trying to improve my health and my wellness and, and through finding a new way of, of life, which is really an old way of life, isn't it, Allie? So now my old way of life is I move smart instead of move hard. So I'll never go to a body pump class again. You know, I, I work out for 15 minutes a day. I'm 55 and I have muscles, you know, and uh, I don't need to, I don't need to, um, I don't need to do the hokey pokey and try to find the next best thing because I can decide for myself on a daily basis. I can trust myself because I, I've healed a lot of the damage that I've done. And, and it's not just your physical body, but it's like your spirit and your mentality and everything that comes along for the ride with that. That's such a brilliant story. Congratulations on, on the, the change, you know, cause you've, you've won that and 
it's a lonely place to be, isn't it? Yeah. It is. When, you're, when your health is destroyed like that, it's very isolating. Um, you can look okay on the outside with autoimmunity and people, well, you look good, they'll say, as your every joint in your body is on fire. Arthritis actually means bones on fire is what it means, you know? And it feels like someone poured hot battery acid into your bones and then lit a match, you know? That's what your joints feel like. And so it's, it's a very lonely to feel that kind of fatigue too and not have anybody recognize what's going on with you and, not, and just not have that like somebody to say, you know what, I, I'm sorry you're going through this because everybody, you know, naturally wants to say, oh, just, you know, you can do this, you can, and you just, you just want that acknowledgement of your suffering for a minute. You know, I really think that I, I learned a lot from being sick and I would not trade it for the world because I, I believe it's made me a more empathetic and compassionate person. And I'm not afraid to look pain that someone else is experiencing directly in the eye. I will not look away. I don't care if your pain is your skid row addict or you, you're completely scarred from burns. I don't care. I'm going to find the beauty in you and in that moment because you need people like me and you are people like me. And so, you know, I, I don't fear um, really anything. <laughs> I just don't. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, Dave, can we hear your story as well? And then we can talk about how you came to start the company together. Yeah, sure. Um, so I was a, <laughs> I was a really hyperactive kid, you know, so my sister was meeting with a psychologist in reference to possibly having ADHD. And, uh, I think I was I was probably in the kindergarten, maybe not even that old. And and basically the doctor would said to my mom, uh, you should probably take out stock and riddle because your whole family is ADHD. So I was um I was placed on amphetamines basically in the first grade to treat my ADHD. And so I think that um that played quite a a, a strong role in my life for a long time. Um I think it it hid my addiction. Um because I didn't have a lot of the consequences that a lot of folks have. And we know like weight isn't affected, doesn't affect everybody. It certainly didn't affect me to the point where my mom actually thought the babysitter was stealing food. It was her, me, her normal weight child. I hate the word normal, but so um, that, that, and then, um, so I didn't, I didn't really know that I had a lot of health, physical health consequences. Um, I didn't have physical pain. Um, I mean, I was always brain fog. I remember what it was like when I didn't take my meds, whether intentionally or not intentionally, I would like eat for five adults, um, like as a first grader. So, um, and I would, re I remember dinner was always like, I would eat like three helpings at dinner because I hadn't eaten all day because my appetite had been so suppressed by meds. Um, and then kind of going through life, eventually I, I discovered artisan bread baking, which became a hobby of mine. Um, I had a blog dedicated to the Grateful Dead and artisan bread um, called Hearth Baked Tunes. And uh, I was baking bread. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Julie and Julia, where this woman basically gets Julia Child's book and she bakes through the whole book in a year. I did that with a bread book with this guy named Jeffrey Hamelman, who I've, who I've actually met. Um, so I baked through his book. So bread was like this like cornerstone of my life. It was like, um, it was more 
it was more than bread to me. It was a process. It, it eventually became, I was addicted to bread and addicted to baking, but like it, at one time I had three starters in my fridge and they all had names. Like it was, it was nuts. And so, um, so then let me try to, the course of events is I was doing a training in Iceland as a dietitian. I was doing a training to become a certified uh, food addiction counselor and they did a screening and they, um, I, you know, I was answering the question honestly. And, and the woman said, you know, you might be an early stage food addict. I did. I mean, if you shake my family tree, a bunch of food addicts come out, like it wasn't a surprise to me. So I said, yeah, you're probably right. So that kind of started my recovery journey. Um, I started kind of playing around with the food, just started giving up grains for periods of time. And I was always still coming home and seeking the drug. Like no matter how good I did all day, it was always like, well, I'm home now. Let's raid the pantry, you know? And, and it did get to the point where I couldn't, I couldn't get into the shower without sugar. I would go, I would go to go in the shower. I'd go downstairs. I'd grab cookies. I'd be up going up the stairs to get into the shower and I'd be halfway up the stairs and I would turn back and get more. So um, I remember that, you know, and, and uh, eventually I ended up meeting Bitten Johnson. I ended up finding low carb. Um, at first I did therapeutic ketosis and then I kind of started playing around with some other modalities. Um, I ended up getting off of sugar, grains and alcohol on the same day, November, 2017. Uh, and I've maintained that. And then being, since doing that, I've been able to do other hard things. Um, I got off of eventually essentially 25 years of, of amphetamine medications for ADHD. Um, that was hard. I've gotten off of caffeine. That was hard. Um, I've been able to do a lot of these like hard things, but I think the backbone was this like biochemical repair, right? Healing my brain and my body with real food. Um, that definitely those things wouldn't have been possible if I hadn't done that first. And now, you know, um, I help people do the same, like heal their body, do hard things. Um, and when you do a hard thing, it's not so hard anymore. So, um, you know, Anna likes to say each one, teach one. And, and uh, so we, now we have a group of people that are doing hard things together. Um, and those things aren't so hard because we're doing it in community. So that's my story, more or less um, short form. You know, there's been, there've been other things that have happened along the way that have taught me lessons about how I need to live. Um, and, uh, but that's, I would say that's, that's pretty much it. Oh, fantastic. Similar to Anna, you know, you've, you've come from kind of a, a hard place, uh, into a really good place. And it's always nice to hear those, those stories. So congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. Um, and it's interesting how I've, I've found, uh, empathy from my own story and each of your stories because sure. you know I'm I'm like an autoimmune bomb site and I've been collecting autoimmune problems since I was a kid and similarly to you Dave I am um, I had kind of issues with brain fog and attention at school I never really put a name to it but as an adult I was diagnosed with ADHD and this was kind of around the time when I was starting to look at exercising food as a way to uh, help my ailing health. And um, it just happened that I'm going to the doctor about ADHD was one of the first ones. So I ended up taking Ritalin for a time. And it's kind of similar to when I've been addicted to cigarettes or caffeine. Um, and by the way, what you said about caffeine, coming off caffeine being hard, 
totally agree. It was actually harder for me to quit caffeine than it was to quit cigarettes. And uh, I relapse still sometimes and it, it's it's so alluring. But um, yeah, I came to the conclusion having got into low carb myself that we didn't evolve over millions of years to have Ritalin deficiencies. Now that's not to say that drugs don't have a place in modern medicine. Of course, if you're damaged to the point where you require them, then it's brilliant that we have them. And, you know, safe effective vaccines are wonders of modern medicine. If I had an infection, then I would want antibiotics, of course, all, this, all these things. But there's a root cause to be talked about. And it's interesting that each of you found that the root cause of many of the problems was addiction. So maybe one of you can talk about um, kind of where is the line that defines addictive behavior in food? Well, I don't think addiction starts with behavior, do you, Dave? I think addiction starts with your brain. And there's some evidence that those of us with addiction have low dopamine from birth. And so our reward center is seeking that hitch, right? And, and of course, that's natural, that's ancestral. And we wouldn't have been exposed to the things that we can get hooked to more easily now. And so we really consider sugar to be the gateway drug. And what happens is um, early and chronic exposure rewires your brain. You're the reward center, the limbic system. So neurons that fire together, wire together. Yeah, so, so what happens is those neurons now are in control. You know, it's uh, they, and once you have that first bite, you can't, you, you need that next bite. And it's because you, your brain knows you're gonna go through pain and it's avoiding pain because you're gonna withdraw because you also have opioid receptors, you have hormones like insulin that are going up and down and, and you crash and you need to eat something because I'm hypoglycemic, right? Or whatever, you know, I, I, I don't have energy. Your brain needs energy, but what's happened is your brain can't produce energy anymore. And we say once you, if you go through detox once, you never have to go through those symptoms again, as long as you don't put that bite of food in your mouth. And for me, this rewiring took place really early. I was three years old and climbed up on the counter to get Johnson's baby aspirin that tasted like sweet tarts. And I knew I was doing something wrong, but I wanted that reward. I wanted that hit. And something in me knew it was medicine and not to eat too many, but I remember I ate three. And so by the time I was in my early teens, I was severely addicted to drugs because guess what? I could get a good dopamine hit, you know? And this went on for years, you know? And I quit doing drugs when I became pregnant at 18 and I ate a, I ate a bag of powdered sugar, Allie, a bag of powdered sugar mixed with water to get that dopamine hit. And I knew what I was doing was wrong, but I didn't know what was wrong. So when I learned from Bitten Johnson that sugar was the gateway drug, it all made sense. All of a sudden, it all came together. And I could see that I was just substituting one drug for another my whole life, whether it was relationships, bad relationships, shopping, sex, you know, money, whatever it was, I was just looking for that dopamine hit. And finally, when I understood the primary addiction is sugar, and I got off of that. 
my brain could relax enough and start to heal. So now I don't have all those process addictions. You know, I'm able to, I'm able to show up for myself for those process addictions and not let them control my life. It's really interesting. What do you make of it, Dave? Um, yeah, I think um, you're an addict if you say you are, you know, so that's kind of, I think, really important. Uh, if, if you self-disclose that you think that you have an addiction, then you do. So I think that um, we don't want to create any barriers uh, for recovery at all. I think that it's a brain illness. I think that it's biochemical in nature. I look at it this way. Um, most children are exposed to sugar prior to their conceptualization of emotions, right? So that means that they've eaten candy before that they have any idea what sadness is. And they already know that um, that substance will affect that their, their emotions. So I feel like the biochemistry comes first. And I always tell this story. I was on, the, I was on an airplane and um, there was this little girl, she was like three or four and she was just screaming bloody murder. Like no one could sue this child. She was being passed between her, her parents and her grandparents and there were toys and all sorts of things. And eventually a flight attendant comes over and asks the girl if she wants a cookie. So she didn't give her a cookie. She just says, honey, would you like a cookie? Stops crying, right? Because her brain just lit up like the Rockefeller Christmas tree. I mean, there's no denying it. And so, and, and the drug addict, right, or the alcoholic on the way to the liquor store, on the way to their dope dealer, they're high. They haven't taken drugs yet. The brain knows it's coming. That's, that's happening in a three-year-old girl. That's addiction. That's how it works. So it doesn't even, it, it doesn't even need the substance. It just needs the knowing that it's coming. And like, and if some, if someone's in withdrawal and they're on the way to the dope man, they're out, they're out of withdrawal. They're not in withdrawal anymore because they're on the way to the dope man. That's the brain. That's, that's addiction. That's crazy to me. That's scary. Um, so it's not even, it's not even the drug. It's the brain. Yeah. We yeah. have to get over the guilt and shame. We have to get over the stigma of addiction. We always say, if you had a broken arm, would you feel guilty and ashamed about that? Or would you go to the ER and get an x-ray and get a cast, right? Of course you would go to the ER and do that. But you have a broken brain. A brain is an organ and it's so important that it takes 20% of our daily energy that we eat just to live. It's so important that at night we release glucagon from our liver just to support our brain so we can survive sleep and rest. It's such an energy hog. And we think that our thoughts are just, you know, we should be able to control our thinking. We should have willpower. When a lot of these processes start with biochemistry, we can't access our frontal lobe when we have interference coming into our brain that's attacking our limbic system and keeping us in base level survival mode thinking. We can't do that. How is that possible? Somebody on heroin's gonna make a good decision, really? You know, give me a break. Their brain, the reward center, opioid centers, you know, cannabinoid centers. In fact, there was an interesting article, Ali, you may have seen it, that you know the study about sleep and you, if you don't get a good night's sleep, you eat more calories. Apparently the cannabinoid receptors are affected with a lack of sleep. And we all know you smoke weed, you get the munchies. So it's, you know, the brain is, it's alive, it's an organ, 
and and we think because um, something comes out of our mouth or a thought is manufactured in our head that that's all us and we should have control over that. But when we take something from outside of ourselves that then manages that and sets a cascade of things happening biochemically in our brain, there's no way we can control that. Yeah, there's, there's, it's amazing the, the multiple ways that we can find ourselves in this groove of feeling like we need to get our next fix of food. And, you know, even beyond um, our own conception, you know, there's this great epigenetics study on rats that you might have seen where um, they released the scent of cherry blossom and gave them an electric shock and they conditioned them in this way so that um, they would measure their vital signs and it got to the stage where they, they just needed to release the cherry blossom and they, their vital signs would show uh, stress patterns. And what was really interesting is that that generation of rats had children that they just left alone to live happy lives. And then the second generation had children. I say children, they were rats, but you know, and uh, it was this, it was these, it was these grand children rats of the originals would smell cherry blossom and get afraid. And so the epigenetic uh, programming over a few generations is powerful in rats in that circumstance, but it just shows that mammals have amazing adaptability and it can go the wrong way sometimes. And I think in the modern food environment, it's, <laughs> there's multiple ways to go wrong. It's, and, it's, it's the opposite. It's almost hard <laughs> to go right with yeah. the uh, kind of the amount of stimulus and, and uh, Anna says the food industry is an entertainment industry. You know, I think that's so true. Yeah, um, for sure. What I, what I noticed says that the, there's each holiday is almost a sugar-based holiday. So you right, go from right. you go from um, Valentine's Day, where a box of chocolates is de rigueur, to Easter, where it's the Easter Bunny bringing chocolates to your your garden. Apparently, that's the story of Jesus. Um, and then you've got uh, it's always someone's birthday. It's always someone bringing cake into the office. Sure. Um, Lou Walker does great stuff about cake, office cake culture. And you've got uh, Halloween after the summer. Um, and, uh, you know, back to Thanksgiving in the US, Christmas, and round and round it goes. I mean, you're both based in America. How is it different, do you think, over there to over here? Do you have a sense of that? Well, I don't know. I do know that we, um, by law, have a lot more additives that are legal to put into foods that we have no idea what they do to um, the human body. And honestly, I mean, I think you have to have a degree in, in chemistry to be able to read a food label. And 70% and of our foods in the grocery store have extensive labels and over 70% have added sugars. And there's a new, uh, a new regulation that I saw Nick Norwitz posted about, I think it was or date sugar, I can't remember, but they didn't have to put it as an added sugar. So the food industry here plays the hokey pokey with your brain. One day it's good, one day it's bad. 
you know, and they, they get a lot of backing from like the American Heart Association and dietitians work for grocery stores and put dietitian's choice and it'll be like a, you know, it'll be like a non-nutrient dense non-food, but it's a better choice because it's lower fat and it's lower calorie, but it's not nutrition. It's not, there's no nutrition in it whatsoever. And so we also have like a, a study that came out that 70% of the food Americans eat now is ultra processed food. And that study was done from one year, from one year old. So 60% is super ultra processed and like the, the 70%, 10% is like processed, you know? And so, and 10% of people's disposable income goes to eating out, you know? And people say they don't have enough money to eat healthy. Well, that's, I call bullshit because that's a lot of money spent. Even that 10% on eating out, man, that's, that's grass-fed beef for your family for a week, going out probably one time. And you don't even need, you know, as Ken Berry says, you know, um, spa-raised panda massage beef to get healthier. You don't have to have that. I, I, I'm with uh, Dave, you know, you don't want to set the bar so high that people can't get in the in the club, you know, this isn't a club, this is a health crisis as far as I'm concerned. And kids are addicted sooner and, and faster and we see higher rates of suicide. I think it all starts with the food, I really do. And it's, and it's not just the food that the kids are eating, but the parents are eating because food and mood go together. So we can't, you know, I couldn't function like I function now when my blood sugar was all over the place, you know? And so, and I think it's generational, like you talked about, Allie, you know, what, what I eat, I was eating a bag of powdered sugar. You don't think that affected what my child was getting, you know, in, in utero? Yeah. And doctors Agnes Aiton and Ali Ibrahim were on the podcast talking about processed food being 100% of binge eating foods. Is, would you agree with this in your experience or is there are there exceptions and you know how would you define processed as well yeah there are exceptions i think um i think that the interesting aspect of food addiction is it's a substance but a behavior right so when we talk about substance abuse we're talking about drugs alcohol sugar um you know and and then you, we talk about process addictions gambling sex debt right they're processes um so with food you have both so you have food that's physically affecting your biochemical nature of your body right through processed food and then you have this like active eating so i mean i've met food addicts that are volume addicts and that they'll they'll I was just talking to someone yesterday. We were doing these breakthrough calls and we were having a breakthrough call and she'll like binge out on healthy foods, um, you know, like chicken breasts and broccoli and butter, you know. Um, I don't think that's the norm. That's not the majority of folks, but I think it's definitely, it's definitely there. Um, most people binge out on hyperpalatable foods because that's, that's what's going to trigger their reward system. But it's almost like, it's almost like, it seems like the people that are volume eaters, they're not necessarily seeking dopamine. They're seeking oxytocin. They're seeking like comfort, soothing, safety. They're not seeking like a hit. Um, so, and then some folks do both. You know, some folks do the binge foods on the hyperpalatable food, but then 
when they feel lonely and sad and emotional, they might go to that like warm because the oxytocin is released when, you know, a mother is with its infant, you know, so that's that what could be safer for a baby than to be in its mother's arms. So I think, I think it's that same concept. Um, so I think that, I think that it's both. I think that one is definitely more common though. So interesting. When I was speaking to uh, Dr. Ann Childers on the podcast, she was talking about, she's, she um, advocates lifestyle psychiatry and, you know, she was talking about the relationship we have with food and the relationship we have with our parents when we're very young, you know, so uh, the eye contact or lack thereof, um, which mothers have with their babies, sometimes due to the mother not being in a good place physically, emotionally, um, mentally, partly because of what they're eating. And certainly sometimes the baby can have, you know, dreadful colic and pain that they can't understand because of what they're eating or because of what's being transmitted through the breast milk. And um, it, it really is a very vicious circle, isn't it? Um, so, I mean, you're talking about other addictions as well. Like the, the someone who I've been following for years is uh, Gabor Mate. Mm-hmm. He talks about um, the, 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 the largest bulk of the worst affected addicts that he's met having childhood trauma which ultimately is a break in trust between you and your caregiver um through some uh, you know it could be it could come in, in in different forms but it could be to do with the food it could just be something else entirely um but do you have a sense of what proportion of food addicts have other addictions well addiction is one disease and the symptoms are outlets. Does that make sense? So heroin is an outlet. Sex is an outlet. So it's almost like your house is wired with one circuit board and all that wiring goes to that one circuit board. So think of addiction as like that circuit board, but you can plug in any kind of symptom into any of those outlets around your house. Does that make sense? Yeah, so what what might stop, say, I've, I've, probably drunk too much in the past because um i have I had easy access to it it's culturally part of the fabric in scotland um but i, I wouldn't i wouldn't say that i had a, an alcohol addiction i was definitely addicted to other things what do you think stops including food what do you think um stops one person getting addicted to one thing versus another if it's all the one circuit board. It's, it's hard to say. Sometimes I think availability, because like I was a kid in San Francisco, I got kicked out of high school in the ninth grade. I got my like California high school proficiency. My mom was like, oh, let's ship you off to Nebraska and you can live with your aunt and become a hairdresser, right? You're, you're good at makeup, you're good at hair, you like fashion, you know? So I go to North Platte, Nebraska, which is like EF Egypt to a San Franciscan, okay? Like this is a town of like maybe 20,000, okay? They didn't even have MTV, you know? We're talking like 1981, 82, you know? So I get there, I'm 17 years old, and there's no drugs. And drugs was what I used, right? I used hard drugs, I used any drug. My drug of choice was yours, but I didn't really like drinking. But all of a sudden that didn't matter, Allie. All of a sudden what was available was going to parties where all these, you know, all these um, kids with their big rodeo belt buckles and their 
Wrangler jeans had keggers, right? And they had alcohol. And guess what? I started drinking. I didn't love it like I, lo like I loved the other, but I substituted. So no matter what, if you have untreated addiction, your brain is going to look for an outlet. And so that's what I'm trying to say here. It doesn't matter what you think your preference is because you can't think your way out of the disease of addiction. You either, you either know I have an addicted brain and my brain is very special and it, and it needs, you know, it's looking for a reward and you either stop looking for a reward and you recognize that what Dave says and I'll let him say it, go ahead, Dave, take over. Well, like, like you're changing seats on the Titanic, you know? Either way, the boat's sinking. Your view changes a little bit. You may be rearranging deck chairs, but um, the boat's going down, you know? So, you know, when we have uh, Eric Clapton did like a 60 Minutes interview, um, and they were asking him about heroin being his first drug, and he was like, no, it was sugar. Um, basically, he said, I, I would do anything to change the way I thought or felt. You know, that's, I think, that's the truth of it, right? So, um, I think availability is a big piece. Um, you know, social acceptance is another one, depending on geographically where you're at. Um, but ultimately, you, so we'll hear, I'll hear someone that comes to me for coaching or for assistance and they're like, well, I was an alcoholic and then I became a sugar addict, you know? And, and um, I just refer to them as addicts because you're addicted to alcohol, you're addicted to sugar, you're addicted to sex, you're just addicted. Um, and so what we want to do is treat the addiction, not the outlet. Um, we want to treat root cause, right? That's what you're talking about, root cause. What is your root cause? You know, and like for me, diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, symptoms, they're all symptoms. They're not diseases. They're manifestations of the root cause. For me, for most folks, is probably addiction to sugar. So, and really bad health advice, but that's besides the point. And I'd like to really quickly get back to the trauma question. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Cause I can talk on that too. That are, you know, there's plenty of addicts that have never experienced trauma. You know, I know plenty of them. I've been clean for 32 years. I know people that knew they were loved every damn day of their life, but it still wasn't good enough for them. Remember I said that some of us have brains that probably just don't respond or don't produce enough dopamine or maybe the receptors are off or whatever. And I truly believe we were the people that got up and we're why life is still in existence because we would have like gotten out of bed. Let's go. I remember where those berries were last year. It's like a 10 mile hike. Let's go get them. You know, let's, and, and let's go fish and let's go hunt and then let's go home and have sex around the fire and make some babies, right? That's what we would have done. We would have been like prized in our tribes. And now we have all these artificial things, but we still have the same brain. We, we all want to talk about evolution. Well, evolution's a very slow process. And I don't believe our bodies are ever going to get used to misinformation. And that's what that's what our reward center is getting hit with. So I don't think it matters whether you have trauma or not. I believe trauma could expediate the addictive process because now you're, now you're really escaping into a reward, right? But I never heard Eric Clapton say that his childhood was horrible or anything. You know, I, I've never heard him say that. 
In fact, I know he had a guitar when he was like 17, so his parents must have provided for him, you know. I don't know if he was beaten or something horrible happened. I don't think trauma precedes addiction. I don't think that that's, you know, I think trauma can accelerate addiction, but biochemically speaking, no. It doesn't, it doesn't um, preclude addiction. Yeah, that makes sense. Dave, what, what were you going to say on it? I've read Gaber Mate's work and, um, and, he's a, and I've heard him do podcast interviews and be an incredible doctor. Um, I think the only thing that I, I don't is I'm a, like a pretty similar line of thinking with Anna. I think a lot of folks have trauma um, and not all people that have trauma become addicts, um, you know, and not all addicts have trauma. Um, I think it can be accelerated for sure. I think that a lot of people want to figure out why. You know, they want to know why am I an, an addict? Why do I have this thing that other people don't deal with? What makes me so special and so different? And I, I find that the why is useless, right? What you need to teach someone is how. How to recover, how to get out of the hole, how to change your life, how to connect with your peeps, how to use each other to protect the boundaries and contain your brain and all this stuff, right? The, that we say not why it works, but how it works. Like, because the why is useless. It's it's this prefrontal cortex kind of that makes humans happy to understand why, um, but it doesn't teach us how to live so that we can thrive as human beings. And that's what I think the recovery part comes in. And back when we were talking about addiction and we were talking about the brain and literally, you literally can't think your way out of it. It's not possible. You're dealing with completely different parts of the brain. So we have this great, fantastic, functional, human advanced brain. It's like a supercomputer and it, and it helps us like manipulate things and the environment so we can build homes and build bridges and, you know, and, and a dog can't do that, right? A dog's highest level of thinking is I want a cookie. And that's, that's my addict brain. My addict brain wants a cookie. And so it's going to do whatever it has to do to get a cookie. And so for a dog, it sit, it lies down, it stays, it gets a treat, it gets a reward. It's dopamine, right? But on, I can't think my way out of that level of thinking. Like I can't say, Dave, you don't want a cookie when I want a cookie because I want a cookie. And so I can't, I can't rationalize my way outside of that scenario by telling myself, well, cookies are bad for you. Because like I was on my way to the store to pick up drug foods while I was telling myself, Dave, don't go to the store. That's, that's the disconnect. The, 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 the brains can't connect. And then you're stuck. You're totally lost. You, and, you, and you get so befuddled and so mad at yourself and you beat yourself up and you dive into self-pity. And trust me, I've been there. There's no worse place than self-pity. It's totally destructive. And, and, and you just can't reason your way out of it. You have to do stuff. It's the how. We have to take actions. We have to show you how do you change your thinking? And the way that you change your thinking is by changing the way that you practice life. And it's a practice. Well, we have a, one of our community members, we have this thing called the three Ps and she says, be patient with the process of progress. It's a process and it takes practice. And, as we, and then we look back in the rearview mirror, we see obstacles that there were major obstacles in our life. And we laugh at them because we know what to do. Because we know how. We know how to walk around the pothole. 
Um, and I think that's why we need other people. Like that's why I could probably recover alone, but I have absolutely no desire to. That just, it seems so dreadful. Yeah, I struck on a couple of really important things about community lastly, and then also um, around how we can, we all understand that smoking is a killer, but smokers just continue to smoke. So it's, it's like you say, it's, um, it's understanding how to separate that destructive part of yourself so that you can, um, you can minimize its impact on you and do, to do it with other people. Um, and it you know, it'd be interesting to know if the process, which obviously does take time, um, kind of, do, do you find that some people find it much easier than others? Definitely. Yeah. Just like anything, people just, people, some, like some people, like there's this picture of these two dogs and they're running through a mud puddle, right? And one's like a chihuahua and one's like this like great Pyrenees massive dog, right? They have two totally different experiences with the mud, right? One's like up to the neck in mud and one's like, you know, up to the ankles in mud. I think people are the same way. And I also think it's your level of pain that you come in with. Okay. So I could hold my hand over the fire for a long time before it got hot enough for me to feel the pain. And I think the pain of staying the same has to be greater than the fear of change. Addicts don't come willingly to the conclusion that they're an addict. They come to the last house on the block. They've exhausted everything in the world. They have tried everything. I mean, you should see some of these sugars that we do. We use this sugar assessment tool and you can only have, what is it, 24 symptoms. And I have people that have like 22 symptoms, 24 symptoms all the time. And they look like normal people. They look like successful people on the inside. They're dying. They, are, they hate themselves. And they are so relieved to see, oh, my first symptom was when I was three years old, five years old, seven years old. I can't be responsible for that. And so they this understanding, I am not responsible for my disease. This is a disease. This is your brain got hijacked. And we have to remember these food companies are after that for real. Like they hook people up to machines to find the bliss point, people. Understand that when Lay's potato chip says, I bet you can't eat just one, they mean it. <laughs> they mean it. Right, right. And if you can't eat one, you probably shouldn't eat it. You know, because that means there's no off button for you. But we can't just do that. We have to come to the end of the road for ourselves. We have to wear ourselves out. And that's different for every person. One person might be, and, and there's a difference between a harmful user and an addict. A harmful user will say, oh man, I've been eating too much. And they'll just stop eating too much. You know, an addict, their voice will say, I'm such a loser. I can't stop eating. I always, I mean, it's to me, this is sad now. It used to be funny, but in Austin Powers, Fat Bastard, they had that scene where he said, I can't stop eating. But it was like this big, long speech before he got to that point. And now when I see that, I cry. I cry because I'm like, oh my God, I get it. Yeah, you see it. that in, uh, in The Simpsons now that, Although a lot of the humor has aged really well and it's still a gold show, 
there's stuff about alcoholics in there which does not look good now and i think it's going that way with food like you say um it's funny how different people come to you know realizations and ultimatums about um about addiction in different ways you know like i knew that smoking was terrible for me and i'd heard the the old saying kind of attributed to Mark Twain, I think, um, smoking's easy, I've done it hundreds of times. Sorry, quitting smoking's easy, I've done it hundreds of times. And um, it was actually a paper that I read which said that about 80% of the dopamine is released when uh, you have a cigarette, if you're an addict, a nicotine addict. And that really disturbed me. I thought, well, that means that actually I'm not responding to life around me in a, a quote unquote natural, appropriate way. I'm regulating my own emotions um, in a way that just forces me to consume more and more to get the same effect. And it's the same with any of these, you know, um, dopamine triggers. And I feel fortunate that in a way that it was food and it was never something like you know gambling, which you can you can lose everything with, um, you know all your money, um, and it's it's you know no one could have guessed that about me. So what I think is amazing about coaching is that you you have to listen to the experience of the individual, which is, is I can imagine might bring some some sort of tension when you're trying to do this in a group setting. You know, what do you think about that? Everyone coming from different directions. They're not, they just think they are. Addiction makes you have more in common than you have in differences. And I also just want to clear up the misconception real quick. I really think it's a misperception to think that, you know, to be glad that you're only addicted to food because the consequences of food addiction right now are horrendous. You know, my husband is a cardiologist, interventional cardiologist, and what he's really dealing with is mostly the effects of food on the human body, because most um, heart disease begins with metabolic syndrome. And that's just the truth. This is where you're going to get a bad lipid panel. This is where you're going to get high blood pressure. This is where you're going to get diabetes. This is where you're going to get, you know, even autoimmunity, all kinds of things. But aside from that, it's also very isolating and alienating if you're the type of person that gets fat because of it. Because you can be a very skinny addict with who has adopted process addictions in order to deal with the food. So you gorge, purge, over-exercise, whatever to try to... I've had addicts that have never been overweight ever. They've been maybe at the top of their weight range and they are the toughest addicts to deal with because they don't see the consequences and the consequences aren't visible to everybody. But these people that the consequences are visible and they weigh 250 plus pounds, they're in so much pain and they are so isolated and alienated and suicidal. We have heard stories in Dave's group about people that tried to kill themselves because they didn't want to exist. Addiction is a deadly disease, period, the end. It's a chronic and progressive illness. And so it, it's treatable. It is treatable. And once you start treating it, you come alive and you, and you unplug and you don't, you don't want to put that fork into that outlet again, right? You just don't want to do it because you get a level of personal freedom. You know, I mean, I saw someone on Twitter that I follow 
today talking about she has all these rolls of skin and this and that and i responded to her you are not your skin you are a flipping hope to a whole bunch of people don't forget that she's down a hundred pounds and all she can see is her outsides you know i i like to say whether you're born pretty or ugly you don't have a choice there's, there's no choice in that matter you know, I saw a woman on Instagram yesterday who was Muslim and she had her, you know, hair covered, completely burned, you know, because somebody, her father or her brother or her husband decided she needed gasoline thrown on her, you know. And you know what she was doing? It was, a, it, she, it, she, was she was winking and kissing and she was like, you know what? F you all. You're not taking my spirit away. You can mess with my outsides and you can burn me, but you're not going to burn my insides. And I think that that's the attitude of rebellion that we have as addicts that we can use as a tool to say, you know what? Yeah, sure. You want to see my rolls? I'm not my rolls. You know, you want to see my stretch marks? I am not my stretch marks. We can write a new story for ourselves and that's rewiring. That's rewiring. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think, um, yeah. You know, the, I actually feel lucky in a way that the severity of symptoms I get from eating the wrong foods is, are, are harsh because it gives me that instant feedback. You know, um, chronic disease typically catches up with people when they're, I mean, younger and younger now, but um, typically when they're 40, 50 or 60, and sometimes they feel like, you know, they could have done something if only they'd known. And that is a tragedy. And I agree that, you know, you can go, some, even, it's, it's hiding in plain sight in the advertising. You know, there's, a, there's a, a chocolate advert that's been run for 15 years or more in the UK, which shows a woman at night going to the fridge, taking a big bar, like a really big bar of the chocolate out. Um, in fact, it's, she hides it in a box under her bed and then she eats it by herself in the bedroom and the only thing that makes it not really really sad on the screen is that she's a supermodel um, so it's really twisted and um, you know the loneliness and pain that people feel is is real for sure but they're trying to normalize it right because yeah. the food companies want you to not feel alone don't feel bad that you get up in the middle of the night and go to the fridge everyone even supermodels do it nigella bites comes to to mind nigella the the star from the uk who's a foodie her, on her show nigella bites that used to be on the food network she went to the refrigerator at the end of every show in the middle of the night and snuck stuff out of out of the fridge and she was proud of it, you know? And I really think there's like this effort to normalize metabolic syndrome, normal, well, everybody, you know, it's inevitable. You're human, you're getting older, you're gonna get, well, we went from calling it adult onset diet or sugar diabetes to adult onset diabetes. And now we call it diabetes type two because children are getting it. That's not normal. That's our brain and our body being hijacked by non-nutritious, non-food things that we submit ourselves to eating. You know, I think I'm going to do a video for our um, Sugar X where I read the ingredients of something and then ask, would you like one? Would you like a da 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 and read the ingredients and then have people guess what, what, did I, what did I just say? And it could be something as simple as like say an Oreo cookie. 
but it's going to be a chemical shit storm when I say what it really is, you know? So people, people are like, they're eating things. Oh, it's a cookie. No, it's a chemical shit storm. You know? <laughs> it's interesting the, the point you're making about Nigella because, you know, she's, she's very likable and um, she's very kind. And I think kindness to oneself and to others who are in a predicament when it comes to being unable to control their, their food intake is being unfortunately twisted to the benefit of you know processed food companies and to the detriment of people's health and you you go from this well-meaning uh, body positivity and um non-fat shaming into just a, a grotesque support of you know dreadful ill health what do you think about that dave yeah it's <laughs> i'm just thinking that um We've normalized in a lot of ways things that are not in normal, you know? And uh, like I look at medical information that's being passed down to students in med school. They're being passed down information that's familiar, not information that's right, right? They're, you know, and that, so the bad advice is familiar, so it's transmitted. Uh, and it's and it's problematic, and I'm I'm not here to tell anyone that they're wrong. I'm just saying um, that that's part of the problem. Is and and we had some people come into our five day challenge and be like, "Can you can you teach this stuff to teachers and kids in schools? Because that's you know that's going to be amazing. What if the what if the kid could understand what's really happening in their body when they ate certain things? You know, like a rat will eat the white part of an Oreo before it eats the cookie. You know why? Because it's got more sugar in it, but it'll still eat the brown part because it's still got some sugar in it. Like that's the reality. Um, it's just, it's just mind blowing to me. And um, it's crazy. It's so what, what, what's, what's, what is sugar X and what are you trying to do with that? It's an all in one shop it's yeah it's, it's yeah one-stop one shop, shop for for all things addiction and especially those that identify with sugar addiction and we don't want harmful users in there we do not want you to come in because you'll hate us and we don't take hostages because you, we want you invested in the process and can you define harmful users then uh, well, kind of like what I said, a harmful user will be like, oh my gosh, I've been eating too much. They never feel like a sense of guilt and shame. They don't feel like something's wrong with their willpower. They actually exercise their willpower. Their brain hasn't been hijacked. And, you know, and I do want to say that, like, it's natural for people to be drawn to sweet tastes. The very tip of our tongue, you know, is where we start with that. And there's no known sweet, ripe food that is poisonous to human beings. And our, our first taste of colostrum is very sweet when we're babies and we're born because that helps us survive. So I don't think that like being a, a food addict and being in recovery does not mean not to enjoy what you eat. That's, and addicts are very all or nothing. So we, we kind of brought together under one roof everything we wish we had. And we are loving it already. It's we've been open for two weeks, and really this is our first week of really being active in there, and it's just amazing uh, to be in a safe place where we can also talk about 
education, action steps, recovery protection. A lot of people call that relapse prevention. We find that term just too negative. And, you know, it, we want to get out of the food and get into living and get into life. And the food has taken up space in our brain, right? So an addict is constantly thinking about their next fix. So you could be eating breakfast and thinking about what am I going to eat next? And I call it like the, the food mosquito. Um, what am I going to get to eat next? What can I eat? Where, when can I sneak away and get a bite of this? You know, and you're, it's almost like when you're a smoker, right? And somebody's talking to you in the hallway, but it's your break from work and you know, you're going to lose your opportunity to have that cigarette. And your brain is saying, shut up. I want to go smoke. You know, you want to just leave that person. Like you can't be present because of the addiction, right? So, so we really just want to give people tools to really accelerate their recovery and get into life and into what matters and reconnect with, with what really matters. And also just a space for them to be so like, um, the recovery movement basically found, they found this out a while ago that they only need one thing in common because everything else about these people that there's, there's nothing else in common with these people other than the fact that they identify with having food addiction or addiction, right? And so that one thing um, cannot ever be separated from us, right? That one thing ties us, it bonds us together stronger than any other thing. And so creating a space where people can just be food addicts and be in recovery together. And we see people, and right now, I mean, we have folks in Australia, New Zealand, Europe, UK, um, all over the US. Um, and so, and they're in different time zones. So, right, some people are asking for help when I'm sleeping, but there are other people that are there. You know, someone um, reached out for help in the evening in Australia and it happened to be my morning. I was just waking up to it, you know what I mean? So it's it's incredible. and And the, the way that people are surrounding other people and just raising people up and giving them encouragement and, and giving them tips. And, and uh, like, and that's one of the, I think the powers of the way that we run groups is there's nothing that's off limits. You know, there are a lot of places where people can recover for free. That's true. But there's a lot of things that are off limits that we can't talk about. And we can literally like, there is nothing that we won't talk about in our community. You know, well, and people and the people are in the community are creating the community. Like, you know, we had a backbone of like things that we thought of as coaches that would be helpful. And someone was like, let's have an SOS space. Great idea. I didn't think of that. You know, let's have a space for our wins. I didn't think of that either. But people want to like celebrate these things. People want to what we tell on the red dog, we call the red dog our disease. And the blue dog is our recovery. So a place to tell on red. Like these are things that we never would have thought of that people are saying like, you know, it'd be really cool if we had this. And we want that. We want the feedback. We want this to be your place um, to recover. And it's just, it's just a bonus that I get to be there too. So um, because that's, that's recovery. Community is recovery. So we, that, that one piece goes so far and is so powerful um, just to be around other people that are, are kind of co-struggling or co-recovering with you that's immense yeah this, uh, I, th I think um you know abuse thrives in isolation and you talked before about the ritual of bread making and obviously there's a big ritual around 
um, you know, rolling a cigarette or smoking a cigarette or uh, making a drink, making your favorite cocktail. Um, oftentimes these things are, are done alone. Do you think the ritual of recovery is just as important? Oh, yeah. Oh, and, and isolation and alienation are the hallmarks of the disease of addiction. So connection is huge. And just feeling like safe. Okay. So like when I talk about I ate a whole bag of sugar, you know, when I was pregnant, food addicts are like, they, they're not like judging me. They're not moralizing. Someone who's not a food addict is like, why the hell would you do that? You know, or when I was, when I was using drugs and I was 14 years old and I was so out of my mind on PCP that I walked outside of my class and I walked two blocks away from my high school and I couldn't go any further. And I just happened to lay my head down on a railroad track. And I was watching a train come towards me and a man picked me up off of the tracks and literally saved my life. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't, it's a disassociative drug. I couldn't get up off of the tracks. But another drug addict hearing me say that story is like, you know, they're, they're, they're like, I relate, I identify. So that process of identification is huge. And that's why it's important for us not to have harmful users, not to have people that just want to quit sugar for a minute. You know, we need people that want to quit sugar just for today because they understand tomorrow's not promised, you know, that they'll want to wake up tomorrow and know that tomorrow never came. Now it's today again. Now I, I, I want to stay off sugar just for today, you know, and so it's, it's really important because we're not talking to people in a language they'll understand. A harmful user would be looking at us like we have five heads, you know. And yeah, we you, use, you, sorry, on you go, dude. I was just going to say, like, we use recovery language um, that we're speaking to addicts and the people that came to our challenge that wouldn't want to be there are going to leave. You know what I mean? That's This is, they don't need this. Um, you know, so I think that's in the, in the language that we use strong language because um, we know what it's like to be sick and suffering. I lived there for decades. So did Anna, right? So, um, and we don't want to spend another 20 seconds there, you know, and, and so conveying this strong message of, of what it really genuinely takes to live in recovery one day at a time, because it's not easy. And, you know, I was, I was struggling a couple months ago. I had a new baby. There was a lot going on opening a business. And I was like, I was talking to Anna. I was like, I was like, I got to go back to basics. And she said, it's always the basics. It's the people that are doing the basics that have the success. As soon as you complicate this, it's impossible to replicate. I always say simple is repeatable. Simple is repeatable. So we're just teaching people how to keep it simple, how to get through that first 24. And then tomorrow we're going to get through another 24. And then tomorrow we're going to get through another 24. And we're going to keep it really simple and really repeatable. And we're going to have fun doing it. Yeah, that's, I think that's a key, isn't it? Because it's a, literally a sobering thought for some people that um, food could be considered an addiction like that. I think um, there's changing attitudes all the time, of course, but it's still culturally seen as something that you should be able to just control. And obviously the data sure. just doesn't support that, you know, from whether you just want to look at rates of overweight and obesity or whether you want to look at rates of pre-diabetes and diabetes, or whether you just want to, you know, look at how uh, people binge eat so widely now. 
Um, you know, I think of uh, the character of Sick Boy in Train Spotting, who, you know, that's you know the novel and the movie about heroin addicts in Scotland, and they, he, he, there was a source of tension between him and the main character Mark because Sick Boy could um, give up heroin whenever he liked. He just did it, like you say, he was a harmful user. Um, so that's really interesting, and it's. It, I think the fun side of things um, it takes the edge off, right? Yeah. How do you how do you go about cultivating that? Well, I have think, fun. Yeah, we have fun. We 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 talk about things in a positive light, like okay, so you have a broken arm, big deal. You know what I mean? Like, so you have a broken brain. So we what do we humor. do about it? You know. And, and I also think like what you just said, my heart just went, oh, you know, for the guy who couldn't stop because we want to stop and we can't stop. And that's where the guilt and shame comes in. And a lot of people are wanting to soften the language. They want to say, they don't want to call it addiction. They want to call it substance abuse. Oh, you know what? I say, don't give me that, you know, addiction light crap. I know I'm enslaved by certain things. Once I take that thing, I'm a slave. And that's what that person was on train spotting. And addiction means to be enslaved. I have an addiction. My brain is enslaved to certain substances. And I can keep all those, you know how I said there's 24 symptoms. Whatever symptoms I've had, they're always gonna be wired in there. That wiring's not gonna go away, so I need a brain bypass. But as long as I don't put that thing into me, I don't trigger those symptoms. And so I can arrest those symptoms and I can get them to be quiet over time, you know? And I think hope is a big thing. Jen Unwin talks about it all the time, doesn't she? Yeah, you have to believe that things are going to get better, which yeah. can be difficult if you haven't proved it to yourself yet. And I guess, um, right. um, what was I going to say about it there? Uh, slips on mind um yeah that was it uh you, you, you know you're talking about addiction as the the whole root of this thing um yet you've called it sugar eggs do you think um it is useful to have alcoholics anonymous narcotics anonymous sugar eggs and to keep it separate or do you think ultimately if we reach enlightenment on this as, as a collective that they'll just be um addiction x or you know Addicts Anonymous. Absolutely. I think we need to evolve to seeing it as one disease, many outlets. Addiction interactive disorder is, is our baby. We just know that sugar addiction is uh, it's primary. It comes first because of we're exposed first to that substance, right? Nobody gives a baby heroin, you know? And so we're not exposed to a mood or the first mood altering substance that we are exposed to is sugar, grains, that kind of thing, carbohydrates, right? In immense amounts. And so that's what starts the rewiring process. And it's an incredibly difficult disease to recover from because you, you don't have to go to the dope man's house. You don't have to, you don't have to go to the bar. You don't have to do things like that. But as an addict, you still, you still have to eat. You have to eat food. You have to be around other people that are eating food and, and food pushers are everywhere. So it's a very uh, big deal. But I do think like addiction, it, it isolates and alienates. It causes extreme 
emotional psychological pain you know where you feel like you're a bad person you feel like you're a waste of space most people come to recovery feeling like they don't even deserve the space they're taking up on earth you know that's like how low you go before you can get up and it's the fact the fact that one addict can help another is a miracle within itself but it's that identification i know i've been where you are you know let me get down there in that hole with you and help you out of it so in recovery you're not scared of the hole you've been to the hole and you've navigated your way out and you you're not afraid to go back down in the trenches and help somebody else get out you know and that's kind of what i meant about not being able to not being afraid to look at someone's truth what they've done and not they and they don't feel ashamed because now now they're sitting with someone who doesn't believe in guilt and shame, who doesn't believe it was your fault. And, and something about that is hopeful in and of itself, you know? Yeah, for sure. I'm curious, um, I make processed foods. There's no two ways about it. They have no or low sugar. That's the idea. You know, keto ice cream was a really vital bridge away from the worst foods for me when I first started eating low carb. And, you know, I would have a pint of it every night and uh, maybe that tells you something, but I certainly lost weight and um, it really, you know, helped my autoimmune conditions and um, my mental clarity, my mental health. Um, and I found that, you know, my the keto chocolate that I make is similar. It allows me to indulge in a treat while sticking to my health goals. I have been known to overdo it, especially when I'm stressed, but it just doesn't, it just doesn't, you know, have the same impact as um, the, 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 the sugary things did. Um, but it's not like that for everyone, is it? Um, do you, I mean, do you, know, do you know any people who you would consider food addicts or addicts who do well with these types of replacement foods? Yeah, so um, I, I know people that, uh, well, so for me, addiction is if you self-identify. So that's, that's that, you know? And so if you want to tell me that you're an addict, I'll believe you. Uh, you don't need to tell me what it means to you. Um, so you, do we know people that use replacements and have had success? Yes. Um, do they tend to have more success without the replacements? Probably. Um, but you know what I mean? Who am I to tell a heroin addict not to use methadone? I mean, that's just stupid. <laughs> you know, so if you need to use these things to bridge you over to where you're living the life you want to live and, and doing the things you want to do and have the spirit that you want to have, and, and then that's, that's fine. And I have no, you know, judgment against that. I think that we also know that some of these food replacements create an experience on a biochemical level that changes the way that we process events and experiences, right? So, and I don't think we can take that away. Um, you know, um, I've eaten some of these things and that it's not like I have the physical, I don't have the physical compulsion, uh, but it starts playing with your brain a little bit, you know, it starts talking to you a little bit and you, you know, I've, I've done them after I've had periods of 
eating trigger free for a long time. And it's, you know, I hear in my ear, I hear Simon and Garfunkel singing Hello Darkness, my old friend, you know, it's like, you know, and it talks to you a little bit. And so um, some people are able to say no. And maybe, maybe those people are harmful users. We'd have to do a sugar on them. Like our friend Vic from Twitter, we should do a sugar on him and see where he falls, yeah. you know, because so he talks a lot about that replacement things and he makes like the chaffles with the keto ice cream and makes like a, you know, like a boardwalk treat and things like that and things like I couldn't get away with. So um, I think different things for different folks, for sure. Mm -hmm. Right. And I also think there's um, sometimes there's like, who are you living with, you know, so say you're a young mother and you have young children and you've kept crap in the house. Well, I would rather see them make some Maria Emmerich chocolate egg pudding, you know, or some Maria Emmerich ice cream or buy your ice cream for their family rather than um, have those ultra processed foods that we know do a great deal of harm. And I had a client who, you know, she was newly married. They're in their, they're in their late sixties, early seventies, I think. And her husband was just like, I can't do this. You can't eat like this. And I was like, you know what? Just make him a batch of keto chocolate chip cookies and put them in the freezer, you know? And she said, well, I've been, I've been eating like one a week, but now he's, he's like, he can do this. Well, guess what? His diabetes came down. She's happier. She was very stressed, which was increasing her cravings. And so I think that a food plan sometimes has to work for everybody in the house for a minute until that person is, gets the ability to say, you know what, I'll make the cookies for you, but I don't need them. I don't need them. I do that. I have a 17 year old living in my house. I make her those cheese bagels. I make her, you know, a batch of keto cookies or something once in a while, stick them in the freezer. I don't even think twice. I don't even lick my finger. I don't care. To me, it's like, I'm just, uh, putting sand and this and that together and shoving it in the freezer and it's like and it's not food anymore no it's not food anymore and somewhere along the line i think that happens for people but to say to someone who is responsible for feeding their whole family you know let's rip the band-aid all at once and i don't care if your family relationships suffer you tell them they need to support you and you make demands on them why not, you know, and I, I hate to say this saying since we're talking about sugar, but you, you, you catch more flies with honey, right? You, you catch more flies with honey. So if you're sweet about it, if you're like, you know what, I love you guys so much. So I, I got this cookbook. Can you look in here and see what you would like to eat out of it? You know, will you help me in the kitchen? You could say that to your kids, you know, and you can make some really fabulous dishes for your husband and then you could slowly mitigate them off of greens, even by using things like uh, you wouldn't eat it, but you could you could uh, make some like those Brazilian cheese breads that use you know a lot less psychoactive ingredients like tapioca starch or something like that for your family, and they won't even know the difference for a minute. They'll think, "Wow, mom, where what are what are you doing? This is great!" You know, you can make your kids pepperoni chips. I'm a big believer in like, try to keep the peace as you're going through this process. Make it, make it as easy as possible. And remember, you can always change your food plan. Just don't eat those truly trigger foods. You can always adjust your food plan as you go along. It's- And you have to. You have to. Yeah, there's this, there's this um, 
what you were talking about at the start, Anna, which I think is, is always how I end up thinking about things to do with health, is we have Paleolithic bodies and we're in a, um, you know, a, a different era now. And you need connective tissue to make them work together. Mm-hmm. And if that means compromising in your food to make it work with your family or when you're out eating with friends and it, it does work with your health goals and it's not an everyday thing, then I think that's it's, it's necessary, isn't it? Well, I think that trading, um, you know, trading one really huge stressor, getting off of the sugar for another discontent at home is not a good idea. You know, it's not, it's you, you want to create a safe environment. I always tell people how you communicate what you're doing is important because we've all been like women have been on 50 million diets. They've spent a million bucks on Jenny Craig or Weight Watchers. They've had home meal delivery systems, personal coaches. They have spent a small fortune and now they want to, you know, they want to do something different and they want to spend a little bit of money on their, on the actual root cause. And so many people don't believe in food addiction. And so one thing that we teach is to, to go to your person and say, you know what, you have been so supportive of me over the years. I've done this, I've done that. And I so appreciate your support. And I think I know why none of that ever worked now. You know how an alcoholic can't have a drink on the weekends? I think that I'm that way with sugar. I think that my problem is I'm a sugarholic, you know, which is we got that actually from uh, uh, Jack LaLanne. There's a great video of him doing the original five day challenge talking about alcoholism and sugar addiction, you know, and uh, in the 50s. Yeah, you just say to your person, like, so babe, I'm asking you first, I want to try something different, some kind of radical. And you know, you've been so supportive before, can I count on your support now? You know, I'd like to put all the processed foods like in one place in the kitchen and like maybe put a skull and crossbones on that cabinet so it reminds me that's not my food, you know? So you, so you collaborate Bad. with your people instead of like go home and I'm cleaning out the kitchen. I'm throwing out all your crap. I don't care what you guys want. I need this and being demanding. That's not gonna, that's not gonna fly with your people. You know, uh, our, our, our brain, you know, makes everything into this huge emergency and really it's a process. You're, you're probably with food, you're probably going to fail, but a failure only means it's only evidence that you're making an effort and that you're trying something new. People that don't try don't fail. And so a failure is just a lesson to be learned, you know? Absolutely. And of course, people who uh, have this uh, tension at home, you know, there's ways to get over it, but also they have the community online now. And so, you know, why don't we, why don't we round up by you telling us uh, where people can find you and what they can do? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so our website is sugarxglobal.com. You can sign up there. We do have a landing page that's, it should be replaced by the time this airs. So that will be good. Um, so, and hopping on our email list, we have an intention on running another five day challenge very soon. Um, that was incredible. It was so well received. We were honestly blown away. Uh, we are just like immense gratitude for that, the people and, 
and really the vulnerability that people were willing to share with us, um, like online, uh, was amazing. And so, um, you know, and I think that that would be a great bridge for someone who's, who wants to see if this is for them, you know, that will get a really solid taste of who we are, um, what we do and, and how we can help. Um, so that's, that would be the best, I think the best perfect way to do it. Great. And you can reach out to us on SugarX Global on our page on Facebook or either one of us message us on Twitter or Instagram, you know, and, and, uh, just know you're not alone and that there is help out there. And if we're not your cup of tea, we will help you find someone who is, because we know everybody in this space, you know, and so, and we're collaborative. We are definitely not in competition with anyone. We want to do things the way we want to do them, which is very uplifting and very, um, you know, our vibe, I think is just, we believe anyone can get free. We believe no matter how bad of an addict you are, there is a way out. We just truly believe that. Like we refuse to be hopeless. We refuse to tell someone, well, I guess you're too far gone. That's not happening with us. That's never going to happen with us. And we don't care what stage you're at. And we don't care if you, you know, if you uh, fall off your bike a million times, we'll just help you brush off and get right back up on the bike. We're not counting days. We don't, we don't, if you want to count your time, go ahead. If you don't want to count your time, don't do it. We don't care. We just want to, we just want to support and facilitate you to become your best self. That's really, that's really who we are. We want to facilitate a space where we're blown away. Like Dave said, where you're teaching us, this is a, a mutual club. We're not over anyone, you know, uh, we're with you so that's kind of our it's a journey i think our i think we could describe ourselves as a come get on this bus it's moving it's moving it's progressing it's it's not gonna we're not staying still and so i don't know if that makes sense but yeah i think that's a really nice hopeful place to to finish up um unless you have anything final to say dave no, the, the last thing I do is I invite people who are interested, maybe they're curious, they want to kind of see or get a feel. Every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern or 9 p.m. UK time, um, we have a group at uh, 4 p.m. and we have someone tell their story and then we kind of open it up to, to the people that are there. Do they resonate? You know, take a listen, you know, keep an open mind, you know, maybe maybe this could change your life and, and may, or, or someone that, you know, you know, so we would welcome, welcome you to join us there and um, just kind of get a taste, you know, to see if this is for me. Um, and uh, I think it will give you kind of a, a good vantage on, um, on what addiction can be and what recovery can be. Brilliant. Well, that's sugar X global. Check it out. And Anna, Dave, thanks so much again for, for joining. Awesome. So grateful to be here. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks, and see you next time.